So this morning we're going to be talking about King David. And what was interesting to me as we were in worship and even with the scripture that Pastor Chuck shared is, um, you know, even being an Old Testament character, not just a character, but an example and testimony, he, as a great warrior, a long-standing king, 40-year reign, uh, what we have from him in history and in the Bible isn't a compendium of, of uh, war stories that he wrote or uh, strategic battles that he fought. It's not a treatise on the art of war that he could have written, how to beat your enemy with far inferior numbers. What we have from one of the great characters of the Bible and history is a prolific set of worship and poetic songs, odes to who God is and who God was in his life and who he can be in our lives. To me, I was just thinking during worship just how amazing, how telling that is. That even after he fought and defeated Goliath, that he was still, I would say, equally summoned before the king, before Saul, for not just his fighting prowess, but for his uh, use, for his uh, skill and talent on an instrument to bring the presence of God. And for whatever reason, that's not a a way I had looked at him before until this morning, but I want to put that out there for us as we talk a little bit about his life in particular about uh, when he was fleeing from Saul. We've recently concluded our study in Hebrews, and Hebrews in the New Testament, a letter written to a struggling group of believers, one who had come out of Judaism and were in in trouble or on, on the verge of falling back into it, or at least into an apostate faith. And it's all about perseverance and faith and realizing who Jesus is and that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. I think David embodies, as an Old Testament example, embodies much of of that transition of, of looking to God as our Savior, as our King. It's interesting that David, for David, we know so much about him, so much more than most of, the, of, of any other character in the Bible except for maybe Jesus. That multiple books are dedicated to talking of his reign and of who he was and of his childhood and of his exploits. If you read with a cynical eye, you can read it and say, well, who, who was this guy? Why is he in there? Why did God see so fit to have him become so great? Being such a sinner, having his family rebel against him, having multiple wives and so many sin issues. Others, maybe others of us have grown up more in the church and have more of the the uh, children's church idea of David, the uh, picture of this unattainable figure who uh, God loves and, and, and who was a man after God's own heart, which the Bible does say. We tend to forget his fallings and tend to forget his shortcomings. Either way, I think we we fail sometimes to really look deep into 
his heart and, and his dealings with God in that place, even though it's right there on the pages before us. So I want to talk about him. I want to talk about caves today. We'll have a field trip after church going spelunking, <laughs> led by Kevin. Surprise. Caves are interesting to me because they're, they're actually very prominent in the Bible. I'm not going to go too far on a tangent, but if you think uh, about some of the stories we know and, and the places that uh, the men of God would visit, it, it's interesting. For us, some of us have probably never foot set foot in a cave. We wouldn't be caught dead trying to, to, to live in one or let alone visit one and, and seek refuge in it. But for whatever reason, it was a place uh, that has significance, or they are types of places that have significance in the Bible. Whether it's uh, sheltering, whether it's David, whether it's the prophets hiding out or seeking to be near God and hear his voice. I think what's interesting about a cave for us today is it's not the first place we think of as a refuge, as a warm and comforting shelter. For most of us, it's probably a symbol of a theoretical place of our fears and our phobias, the spiders, the bats, the insects, the dark, the claustrophobia. As we'll see today, though, a cave was very much a place of refuge, very much a place of strength, uh, of eventual comfort to King David, to, who, to David who would become king. To set the setting... I want to talk about a ministry I visited called Adulam. I didn't know much about what Adulam was as a place in the Bible before um, visiting this place, this ministry that's named after a place where King David hid. So the ministry Adulam was in, is in uh, the outskirts of Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I went back there after having lived there in college and led a helped lead a, a church, a uh, not a church, but a, a project serve, a, a service team. And what was interesting to me, let's go ahead and put that title slide up. I was going to show you some great photos, some photos of the kids and, and put together a PowerPoint. And, well, putting together a PowerPoint at 4 in the morning just didn't work. Um, so maybe at Wednesday I'll share some fun photos, but. What's uh, here in the background is, is just a, it's a windmill that supplied the power um, to this farm. And with the power came, came running water. And without the power, there's no power and there's no running water. Uh, but this ministry out along would take people off the streets in Argentina, people who are marginalized, destitute, on the verge of death, uh, fresh out of prison, you name it. They would take them in. No questions asked, no no thresholds to overcome and what they would do is they would teach life skills to the people they ministered and they would also teach the word of God but they wouldn't put that as a requirement upon them what would happen is usually these folks would come in and live in that place and learn receive the love of this ministry receive the the care and and the word of God and most of them wouldn't last more than three months, maybe six months before they did surrender to Jesus. We led a team of, I don't know, about ten there. We were just there a week. And I remember thinking to myself, watching all that was going on and the interaction of our team with this group and 
uh, the other church members uh, from the ministry who would go and serve. I remember just looking and, and observing and thinking, this is, this is it, God. This is what your church is supposed to be. This is the closest thing I've ever experienced to the church, the early church in Acts. I know I've shared some of this before, but it, it'll feed in, I promise to you today. I would sit around and, and drink mate, which is one of the, the kind of the traditional tea, and you drink in the afternoon and you share. It's a communal drink. You don't worry about germs or swapping spit, but you just you take a sip, you pass on the gourd, and somebody else takes a sip, and then you refill it. And I remember taking the time to hear people's stories and struggling to, to recall my Spanish and communicate with them. And the testimonies I heard were amazing. Most of these folks didn't come to God because of a televangelist or a big crusade or whatnot. They didn't wander into a church. But they found a people who would come and rescue them and live with them and teach them and commune with them just as they are. I met a mother who had her child while in prison, malnourished, and they had gotten out of prison, and the child's about one year old, and you could tell they're still just ravaged from having been in that situation. They don't have the, the uh, child services that we do. Met a Another person who had killed a police officer, murdered a murderer. For whatever reason or another, he, he was released, and this ministry took him in. And there I am, him telling his story to me as he's holding somebody else's child. Unafraid. Completely changed. See, Adulam means refuge, means retreat. Another meaning means justice for the people. I knew nothing about what Adulam was in the Bible until I came and visited this ministry. It turns out that even though there's not much written about it, it is a significant place in the Bible. It's mentioned, again, briefly, but several times. It's, it's thought of, there, there are two possibilities, but most people concur that this is the place in Adalam, in the Bible, where David wrote the 142nd Psalm, which we'll get to this morning. To set the context, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So on one hand, it, it, the Bible is talking about a specific place where David went. He, it is also referred to as a more of a geographical area instead of a, a you know a specific GPS location, if you will. It was a place that David would, would at times come back to, as far as we can tell. It was also a place where it seems that he set up his headquarters for a while. It was a place from which his 
mighty men went into Bethlehem, past the Philistine guard, to fetch him some water at great sacrifice to them. And when he, they came back, instead of consuming the water himself, David poured it out as an offering before God. It was an ancient place that's mentioned as early as in Genesis. It was a place that jo- Joshua conquered. It was a Canaanite city until Joshua came in and conquered it with the children of Israel. Later it would be rebuilt and fortified after David by King Rehoboam. I think what's interesting though is despite it, its longevity as a key city in the land, I think it at least in perpetuity, in, in, in our understanding, in our context, it did come to mean, to symbolize uh, not so much what it was physically, or, or, but what it came to mean as a symbol to who God is in his interaction with mankind. So the setting is that David was fleeing from Saul. He had already been anointed as a early as a young child, about ten, maybe as old as thirteen. He had slain Goliath around fifteen. He had uh, spent time in Saul's court. He had spent time as one of Saul's generals. But word came to him through his wife, and he had to flee because Saul was angry with him and seeking to kill him, seeking to murder him. He had basically gone from hero to zero and just. A matter of a couple of years. I want us to try to put our, ourselves in his shoes. A young man who was anointed at an early age, who was promised many things by God about how greatly God would use him. And then he has early success, if you will, in being able to stand up to the Philistine giant and slay him with just a sling and a stone. The roar of the Israelite army behind him, the the congratulations and the adoration that he felt. Later, he would be sent by Saul as a general, and he would slay the enemy. He would drive out the enemy from the land. He would come back with Saul's army, and the people around him would be singing praises by saying that Saul, yes, he killed thousands, but David, ten thousands, all by the age of 25. And then he realizes that Saul is out to get him. That Saul is putting him in places of peril with hope that he would be killed in battle. So he's on the run, hiding out, begging for food. A fugitive, an outcast, a wanted man. Now, Probably none of us will ever receive a promise of God that you're going to be king of Israel. But I think there are promises in our lives, things in our lives that God placed in our heart or spoke to us very clearly. And time has passed, and we might have seen a, a an initial fulfillment of those things, but now more time has passed, and there's been a delay. And we go, God, what happened? 
what happened to that thing, that promise? What happened to that place you were going to bring me to? What happened to that work that you were going to do in my life? I feel like you started it. I feel like it was there, and now I don't know what's going on. I feel like I'm listless. I feel like I'm wandering. I feel like everyone's out to get me or nothing is going right. What happened to that promise? I think for David, I don't think it's too far to to imagine that that kingship seems so much in the past, so so far away, so untouchable when he's begging a priest for the f- for the showbread off the altar just to keep himself sustained or hiding out in a cave to avoid detection from Saul having to send his parents to an enemy city for protection from Saul. What I love about King David, again, it's not so much what we're looking at today, but is even with such, even in, in the face of such a great enemy, the king of the land who could command all his troops to seek just one fugitive who had spies throughout, who had married out his daughter to David just with the purpose of trying to trap him and kill him. That David never went on the offensive. But he ran to the arms of his God and the promises that lay ahead. He never sought to hurt Saul, even when he had opportunity. Because he realized that for all of Saul's faults, even his murderous heart, that he still at least in that day was the anointed of God to be the king until God saw fit to replace him. And so for that, David would, would not go on the offensive, but David would just run. Now, I think that some of us, we look at that and we go, that doesn't make sense. We're just supposed to run. David just ran, being the great warrior. David had the opportunity at least twice to kill Saul and he did it. He could put an end to that flight. He could have put an end to his fugitive status. Sometimes we're sent packing, though. We're, we're sent wandering I think, just be near to God. Let's read Psalm 142. With my voice I cry out to the Lord, Yahweh. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord, Yahweh. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell him my trouble. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is no one, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Yahweh. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. 
Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. And this was written in a dark, damp, claustrophobic limestone cave called Adulam. Let's break this down. Verse 1 and 2. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. Pour out my, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. So here David is writing and he's saying how he bears his heart before his God and he references God by his personal name, Yahweh. To have such a close relationship with God should never be taken for granted. To have such access by the blood of Christ in our lives should never be taken for granted. So he pleads for mercy and for grace. He pours out his heart. He confesses. Sometimes we, we are afraid to do that with God. We're afraid of offending him. We're afraid of, of whatever. But the, the reality is he knows our hearts. If we don't bear it before him, what good is bearing it to anyone else? David, this mighty man, this mighty warrior, having slayed Goliath, having killed ten thousands of enemies, having from a young age, been anointed to be king. Is sitting there in a dark, cold cave, writing, God, I'm crying out to you. God, I need your mercy. I need your grace. Here's every hurt, every pain, every question. Verse 3, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Do we hear the hurt? Do we hear the loneliness, the depression? This is a man of God. This is a warrior. He struggled just like me and you. He says, my spirit faints. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. That word there, faints, it's also a, a word for um, a turning, a turning away. I think it, the way I understand it is when my will is not enough, when, when I've given up, God, you still know my path. When I've given up, you haven't given up. Some of us, we've been in that place. We, we get so down, we get so lonely, we get so desperate that we just we want to give it up. But the beauty of being a child of the king is that he knows. He knows our weakness. He knows our heart. But he doesn't give up on us. He still knows our path, and he's still guiding us on it. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to, to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. He's writing a little bit of an exaggeration, a little bit hyperbole, because he's sitting in the place of refuge, writing there is no refuge. But 
the point remains that he he was he was down and out. He fled. He had sought refuge from his nation's enemies to protect him from Saul. He had nothing with him until he went to the priest and said, "Can I? Do you have anything for me?" Asking a priest for weapons. And he happened to have Goliath's sword. Saul had laid traps for him. He had uh, betrothed and given uh, his second daughter, Michal, to David and with the purpose, with the intent that she would spy basically on David and lead David into the traps that Saul would set. And yet uh, she fell in love with David and, and, and therefore gave her loyalty to him and rescued or at least gave advance warning of Saul's intent. So David was saying, Everywhere in this path, there are traps. There are people out to get me. They are out to kill me. And this is the path that you have me on, God. He says, you know my way and the path where I walk. The path, my, my way is that path. In this path, no one looks to me. No one cares for me. There's no place left for me to go. In verse 5, he says, I cry out to you, O Lord. Here's kind of the turning. I cry out to you, Yahweh. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. I think one way to understand this is, uh, and I think is very applicable to us is, is on one hand in the first several verses here we see uh, David's feelings his sense of loneliness his sense of abandonment his sense of fear his sense of, of nothingness on the other hand with his voice with his prayer he declares who God is he says, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. As much as and as symbolic as Adulam is, and, and I don't want to lose sight of that, but David is saying, there's no place, there's no person, there's no thing as my refuge but you, O Lord. Then he says, you are my portion in the land of the living. As I breathe, as I feel, as I still live, you are my everything. You are my sustenance. He says, attend to my cry, for I am brought low. I've been humbled. He calls upon God, deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. An admission of need from the greatest warrior in Israel's history. Bring me out of prison that may give thanks to your name. He was as free in one way as anyone could be. Hiding out, not being tied down to one place. Fleeing for his life, but choosing where he went. But yet, his enemy, the 
odds stacked against him, he felt imprisoned. Nowhere to run. He says, bring me out of the prison that I may give thanks to your name. What did we learn last couple weeks? That we need to have God's praise, his name, his thanks on our lips. And then he says in declaration, the righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. Do we see that 180 turn? He goes from feeling I'm out, I'm done. No one cares for me. There's no place left for me to turn. Woe is me to declaring with his voice, with his lips, God, you are my refuge. You are my strength. You are my sustenance. Because of what you will do in my life, the goodness you will show in my life, despite where I am now, that's not where I will end up. But because of who you are, others will come. Others will see your goodness in me and be drawn to that. How cool is that? I think you could break down his prayer to this, that, that one, that God would hear him, that two, that God would see him as humbled, and that three, that God would deliver him. I think that ought to be more of our prayer more often. I think it's amazing to see David's humility, whether forced upon him or volitional, that he recognizes his own ability, his own strength, the, 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 his weakness and Delivering himself, his weakness in fighting against the odds that only God in his infinite power can save him. And in that place, despite those feelings, he sees fit to desire to give thanks, to desire God to work in his life, not for his own gain, not for that kingship that was once promised, but for the glory of God. So what does that mean for us? Again, I think we can agree that we all have trial and tribulation. We may not be a murderer who's in prison, but we have obstacles. We have things in our way that, that don't belong there. We have depression. We have guilt. We have loneliness. We have people who stand against us at work, people who stand against us even in our families. I think the lesson in David from David's life, at least in, in Psalm 142, is, is it's okay to pour out your heart before God. That we need to realize that he knows, that he cares, and that he loves. And that we don't have to be ashamed of those feelings. In that place, though, we need to realize who God is. That even when we give up, even when our spirit faints within us, he doesn't. Even when we're not sure of the path we're on, God knows. To realize and to know, the faith forward in, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then we declare. We set our feelings aside and we will ourselves to declare who we know God to be because of his word, because of his testimony in others' lives and in our life previously. We say, God, we know you are able. You can save us. You can intervene in my life. God, you are my refuge. 
You're my protection. You're my retreat. You are my portion. You're my sustenance, my very breath of life. You're my being. And with that declaration, we give thanks. And we seek to give thanks in all of it. Think about him writing this. He's on the run, a fugitive, entire land looking for him. Some loyal to him, others not. Hiding in this dark, damp, cold cave. Unable to go where he wants, unable to do what he wants. He's put his, he didn't put his parents away in an old folks home. He, put, he, he, said, he went to his enemy and said, I really need you to protect them. I wish I knew more about that discussion. What's that cave for us? Family trouble, finance, worry about the future, worry about the past, guilt about the past, sin issues, addictions, physical ailment. That place we look at, and God, I, I don't want to be here. I don't want to go back. I, I, that place is too dark. That place is too cold. That place is too small. And yet sometimes it's, it's in that place in our life, in that same place of, of fear, that same place of struggle, that same space that God wants to work his greatest victories, that God wants us to realize it's actually in him meant to be a place of refuge, not because of the circumstance you're in, not because of the feelings you face, but simply because of who God is, that ultimately he is your refuge, even in those times. David could have given up. It sounds like he probably wanted to, and maybe even did. But then he would turn, and despite his feelings, he would say, but God, you know my way. You are my refuge. You are my portion. In our depression, in our anxiety, in our fear, do we take the time, do we muster the strength to declare God greater than our circumstance? Or do we wallow in it? So I think the key for us is, is what we've talked about, is to separate our feelings from the truth. What we feel isn't always reality. What we feel isn't always what the case is. It can revolve around it. It can be part of it. But we have to see past that. We see that turn in verse 5 in Psalm 142. He expresses his feeling in the first several verses, and he, you can hear it in his voice. He, you know, he turns to God, and he, God, you are my refuge. You are my strength. Despite what I feel, despite what I want to do and give up, I know you to be greater. So he expresses his feelings, but then he expresses the solid things, the truth that he knows. 
It may be true that you have financial struggles. It may be true that you're depressed. It may be true that you feel lonely or that you feel down and out or that you feel like you've been down this road one too many times. But the greater truth is that God knows. The greater truth is that he wants to be your refuge. He wants to be your strength. That he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the same way he came through for David and fulfilled his promise over his life and brought him to become king at age 30 and gave him a 40-year reign. The same way that he was with the disciples in the early church and ushering in this great movement to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same way that he worked in the ages since, in the great revivals. He worked in Azusa. He worked in Southern California to start a movement of people who would seek to start churches everywhere that were Bible-based and Spirit-led. That same God is the same one who knows your way. He's the same one who is your refuge. He's the same one who is your, ought to be your very being. What I love about the psalm and the setting it was written was if we go back to 1 Samuel, we know that David hid there. We know that he fled there, that he was, sought refuge at Adullam. And it was at Adullam, in that place of desperation, that David, that God, using David, brought people to him and says, and everyone who's in distress, and everyone who's in debt, everyone who's bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with them about 400 men. On one hand, you can say, well, you know, people knew who David was and they wanted to go with them. He was charismatic. He was a leader. And maybe some of that was true, but I don't know about you, but whoever's on F the FBI's most wanted list, I don't want to be in the same state as him or her. If I know that, that uh, no, we won't go there. <laughs> if I know that I, I'm, I'm aligning myself with somebody who's in the line of fire, I want to be miles away from that person. And yet, the goodness of God, the, the way that God dealt with David bountifully in that situation, showed the goodness of of God through David in that place in such a way that others were drawn there. Debtors, people in distress, people on the run, people who were down and out. See, God knows his own timing. He didn't intend for David to become king after he slew Goliath. He didn't intend for David to become king after he won great battles and victories for Saul. He intended for David to become king after years of hardship, of struggle, of fear, of tribulation and trial. God didn't forget his promise. God didn't forget that he anointed him king. Because of David's trial, we have much of the Psalms. Because of the 
interlude. We get to see his heart and see how God intervened in his life. What have we done with our own promises that God gave us? What have we done with those dreams, those goals that God set before us? If we laid them to the side with every trial, with every hurt, with every struggle, or have we held on to them and declared them? Think about how many narrow escapes, how many figurative caves, how many brushes with death David faced between the anointing by Samuel and him being crowned king. If I'm editorializing, I'd say that the, the place where David triumphed was in those figurative caves, was in that Adulam, was in that place of refuge despite his feeling of being alone, his feeling of being down and out, his feeling of having nowhere else to run. Because that's where he declared who God was. That's where he says, God, you are my refuge. You know my way. You are my portion. Hear me. Deliver me. Deal with bountifully with me so that others may see your goodness. May that become our testimony. In the midst of our fears, in the midst of our failures, and our feelings of loneliness, and our feelings of depression, our feelings of giving up, that we allow the Spirit within us, having profess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we allow that same spirit to give us the strength to proclaim just who God is, that he is greater than our circumstance, that he is our refuge and our strength, that he is the same yesterday and today forever, that he will deliver and he will deal bountifully that others may see the testimony of who he is, that we might worship and give thanks. Adulam. In one way, it was a place. In another way, it came to symbolize simply God being a refuge. A place where sinners can come, a place where murderers can be transformed. That little farm in Argentina, it, it's become about 15 farms in Argentina all taking people in off the street, all giving them shelter and warmth and skills and hope in Jesus. It's been 11, it's been nine years since I've been there, and it's grown tenfold. May we collectively, our lives, our testimonies, reflect God is our place of refuge for us and for others. Amen. Father, we come to you this morning humbly. Lord, we might not all be in the midst of trial, but we know that they will come. Father, help us to hold on to your promises. Help us to decipher feeling versus truth. 
Help us to remain steadfast in our understanding of who you are and who you've called us to be. Lord, when things seem insurmountable, when life seems too hard, help us to declare with our lips who you are. That even if we've given up, even if we feel like we can't go another step, that nobody cares, that all the world is against us, help us, Lord, to turn to you even in that. Father, help us to realize that ultimately it's not about others caring for us. It's, it's not about our enemies. It's not about the place we lay our head or the food we eat. It's simply that you are our refuge. You are our portion. You are fortress in a time of trouble. God, if we are prone to look toward other things, if we're prone to look toward food or substances or, or people or uh, to rely on our own strength, may we now understand that it is you and only you that can save us. In our wandering, in our depression, in our fear, in our anxiety, May we declare you king of our lives. Father, we want to lay hold of those promises. We want to declare your name and your goodness for all the world to hear. In Jesus' name, let's stand and worship.